Good singing this morning, lifting our voice together to sing how great God is. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're going through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. We're in the middle of a discussion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been talking to the disciples, asking them to be careful, to beware. There are some things they need to be afraid of. And there are some things they don't have to be afraid of. Fear is one of those themes in the first portion of this chapter that um, he's drawing his disciples to beware and to be careful. And in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13, the Bible says, And one of the company said unto him, in other words, one of the men, said unto him, Master, speak, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which you have provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Father, Help us as we've opened the scripture, we've read the word, you've done the work of inspiration, through your providence you have preserved your word in our language today that we can read and understand, and now we ask that the Holy Spirit through illumination plant the seed into hearts that are tender and ground that's been tilled and will be receptive to the Word of God this morning. Lord, this is a very serious conversation that you have with your disciples, wanting them to beware. And uh, Lord, would we also beware of greed and covetousness. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I remember when I was a kid, I was raised in a pastor's home. So I was the pastor's son one of the pastor's sons that sat towards the front row. And there was often times where um, my mom sitting with, she would be at the piano, and um, she would come back and sit with us during the service. And if I cut up and I interrupted the service, um, I was taken out. And uh, not, not like, you know, like that, but <clears throat> I was taken out of the service to an undisclosed location and corrected and I remember as a little boy, sitting on the front row with my, my family, right in the middle of my dad romping and stomping and preaching and going at it, and right in the middle of service, an elderly lady stood up and started to talk and shout out loud. And I was standing on the, or sitting on the front row, and my eyes got big, and this lady had stood, stood up and an elderly lady, and I don't remember all of the circumstances, the situation, but she was obviously disrupting the service. And a few of the ladies and, and some, some, some people that were sitting around stood, stood next to her and, and, and helped to usher out the back door. And I remember thinking as a little boy, boy, she's going to get a spanking. <laughs> you know, that's what I thought when you got taken out, you know, in the service. Now, I think there were some, some issues that were there, obviously, that, that had been dealt with. And um, I was young, but I remember the scenario, the interruption of my dad preaching. Uh, he had had a few occasions where his sermons had been interrupted. There was the one time where uh, a, a man who was drunk came in the service and walked down the aisle and staggered and said something to him while he was preaching and the ushers came and ushered the man out. There was one time where I had a watch that, uh, that had a, a crow, a, a cuckoo crow uh, at noon and right in the, the middle of concluding his sermon, my watch was in the choir loft and it started to crow. And it was one of those that didn't stop until you pushed the button and I was down in children's church. And uh, so that, that, that interrupted the service. I remember one, one occasion where someone on the back row took out some binoculars and started to look around the service. <laughs> and, um, and, and my dad had to stop the service and, uh, and, and try and, and help the situation. I know Jesus was interrupted on many occasions of his preaching. 
The interruptions come sometimes when Jesus was just in the middle of preaching and all of a sudden the ceiling starts to be torn apart. And then a man starts to be lowered down on a bed right in the middle of Jesus' message. What an interruption that was. There was a time and an occasion when Jesus was in Nazareth when he was preaching and teaching from the word of God that the crowd was so hostile that they grabbed him and took him and was going to throw him off the cliff. And the Lord Jesus Christ passed by seemingly in a miraculous way where they would not even touch him. There were other occasions where Jesus was interrupted. Sometimes Jesus interrupted himself and stopped the whole situation to address a man maybe in a sycamore tree or in another situation where someone would, would touch the hem of his garment. Right here in the middle of this message, the Lord Jesus Christ is preaching. A man cries out, raises his hand, maybe he doesn't raise his hand, stands up and interjects his, his own thoughts and interrupts. One person said this, this man was out of sync and disruptive. Jesus is teaching and preaching on some very serious and important stuff. Fearing the leaven of hypocrisy, the Pharisees. Fearing the judge who can damn your soul. Fearing denying the Lord and being denied by the Lord in heaven. The fear of the unpardonable sin. We talked about that last week. Blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Fear that would come. This is some serious stuff here that Jesus is talking about. Then, right in the middle of Jesus' message, a man stands up and says, um, Master, will you talk to my brother about dividing the inheritance for me? This man doesn't care about anything that Jesus is saying. He's absent minded, he's thinking about his own agenda. Jesus is preaching some very very serious information, trying to get to the hearts of people's genuineness when the walk with God and the seriousness of eternity. And this guy is still talking about his things back at home. The fact that he commands the Lord, the, the inference of this, of this phrase is, you tell my brother to give me what I deserve. This is utter selfishness and self-centeredness. He is only thinking of himself. My problems, my conflicts, my inheritance, my brother, my family, my money, my issues. And he completely negates the fact that Jesus is preaching to the heart and what's serious. And maybe you're here this morning and you're in front of the preaching of God's word and the word of God's been opened and read. If you're not careful, if your attention is in the wrong place on your own things in a self-centered fashion, you could completely miss what the Holy Spirit would have for you this morning because you're waiting for your opportunity to ask your question. Jesus points out in the parable that he says in verse 16 down to 21, he uses the personal pronoun I, me, or my 11 times. Did you catch that in the reading? You can underscore those so the next time you come through Luke chapter 12, you remember this in the story. Jesus is bringing a point. The man was concerned about no one but himself. You see, there is a serious danger in trusting in earthly things in being so self-centered and self-focused on what you can get out of life that you lose what the Lord would have for you in what life is truly all about. Jesus would say at a different occasion, for where your treasure is, can you finish it? There will your heart be also. Jesus is going to talk about that. Let's look first of all at the problem and then we'll look at the parable. So the first of all, the problem, verses 13 to 15 in this uh, section here. This man is obviously, there's a, there's a problem going on within the family, within the home, and this guy can't get it out of his mind. He's got a, he's got a spat with his sibling, with his brother. Brothers in fight over whose, whose conflict of inheritance. Two brothers fighting one another. As far as we know, both of them are in the wrong. Both of them are in the crowd, can be assumed. And this guy can't wait until Jesus will shut up so that he can ask Jesus to fix his problem. 
A few weeks ago, we had a youth activity where we were in here where it was the, the families of the teens. So their teens and the families came, and Pastor Ben set up here on the platform the game Family Feud. Remember Family Feud? And then the families were called up, and you answered, and had the buzzer in the front, and then the, the families would get off to the side and have to come together, and these families that were kind of at each other. Now, in that game, you're working one family against another family. Here in this story, you got a family feud from the inside. You got brother against brother. If you were, if you were here a few Sunday nights ago, we talked about a family conflict that happened and we asked the question, what do godly people do when there is family conflict? That happened in Genesis chapter 12 between Abraham and Lot. And you remember Abraham and Lot and his herdmen and they're fighting and, and there's not enough land to go around and hear this uncle and, and this nephew and Abraham in the story sees him as a brother. So these brothers there are, are arguing and, and somewhat having a conflict. There are problems that come in this world. But what do godly people do? How do God pe godly people handle conflict? And if you were here and you can get the message, we spent a lot more time on the story itself a Sunday night a few weeks ago. But remember, Abraham dealt with the conflict with kindness. He dealt with the conflict with graciousness, with kind words. He said, please and thank you. You can read it in the verse. He was selfless. He thought of others. He let Lot choose first. He did not use his status as the elder uncle and the other to say, all right, pipsqueak, get out of here. This is, what's, this is mine. No, he deferred his power and his authority to the next person and was kind and gracious and considerate. He wasn't stingy. The land didn't own Abraham. Abraham owned the land. And so he could easily, very generously give it away because it wasn't his. Now let us... Uh, if at all, the scripture says, possible, live peaceably with all men. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Galatians says, ye which are spiritual, in the spirit of meekness and humility, restore such a one. When there's a conflict and admonition. Your scripture does have things to say about family feuds, family conflict. Here is a classic family conflict, strife at home. And what reigns supreme? Selfishness. Self-centeredness, greed, my way, my wants, my feelings. What I'm going to walk away from this. James says in his book, where comes war and fightings. They come from your desires, your lust. It seems like in this story, one brother is greedy in the fact that he won't allow the inheritance to be divided. That's the unmentioned brother or the, the brother that seems to be indirectly connected in the story. He's holding back. He won't give me. And this brother is holding out because he doesn't want to share. Then you have the other brother who is greedy in that he wants what he has not been given yet. Give me mine. So you got one brother who's holding it. You got another brother who's reaching out to it and they're pulling and tugging back and forth. You see, greed goes both ways in this story. Don't just think that one has the problem. Both. In fact, Warren Wearsby points out in verse 14, Jesus addresses the you, and the you is plural. Not just talking singular to the one man, he could be talking to both brothers when he gives the parable. Families fight over so many different things. I was sitting with an elderly lady this week visiting who was talking to me about her home and her things and her inheritance. And she told me about a family of siblings who she knew in her church who were, who were church-going people and who loved the Lord. But when their mother died, they fought like cats and dogs over the things that were left by their parents. To the one point where two of the siblings did not speak to one another 
until their death. How sad is that? That Christians would fight over things. You see, this man wants Jesus to pick sides. He's not coming to, to ask Jesus to be subjective in the matter. In the two. He has already made his mind up. He raises his hand, blurts out the question, Jesus, choose my side and tell my brother to give me what I deserve. He's not interested in the truth. He's not interested in doing what's right. He just wants Jesus to pick his side. If we're not careful in selfishness and self-centeredness, we can come to the Lord. We can even come to the Bible looking to prove with Bible verses our wants and our desires. Looking to grab God and say, God, like a genie in the bottle, I want you to meet my demands instead of actually legitimately coming to God saying, what is your will in this matter? It's exactly what this man is doing. And Jesus addresses the root of the problem in verse 14. And he said unto him, look at the verse, man, he addresses him in a general fashion. Who made me a judge or divider over you both? Now, Jesus is not belittling in some ways the situation that is their conflict. Jesus has come to help solve conflicts. In fact, it was the custom for people to come to rabbis and, and for them to be a judge in matters within the home and the family and, and those things. And so this man is finding an opportunity in front of the whole crowd, this famous rabbi who is in the land, and now he's going to ask him, would you, would you, um, would you, you know, arbitrate this situation, judge in this situation. That's kind of what's going on. But Jesus now, knowing the man's heart, knowing the perspective, knowing how he answered, he came with a question already with his mind made up. Jesus says, oh, what a great opportunity to teach a very spiritual lesson. To sit back down, and I'm going to teach us a lesson. We're going to keep preaching. Thank you for your interruption, but sit down. Because I've not, I, I'm not come to, to see who gets the car when mom dies. I've not come to make a decision on who inherits the pool in the backyard. Or, or who gets the retirement money. That's not the reason the Savior of the world came into the world is to, is to be a decision maker between things and stuff. To solve this problem between these two selfish men, the Lord Jesus Christ points out the root of the issue in verse 15. And he said unto them, notice he mentions them. Who is them? He was talking to the man, and the man was the one who asked the question. In verse 14, he said unto him, but verse 15, he said unto them. It could be he said unto both brothers. It could be he said to the man and to the disciples. Now he turns his attention back to who he was originally talking to in the previous context. I believe that maybe even this is a, a, a connection not only to the two brothers and to the disciples, but to the whole crowd who is there that day. The ones who at the beginning in verse 1 who are stepping on one another because there's so many people out there in the crowd. A, a number of that, that is a myriad of people who are out there. Jesus is going to take an opportunity to teach the brothers something, to teach the disciples something, and to warn the crowd of something as well as he tells them. Notice what he says in verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Your translation may use the word greed. For a man's life, so Jesus gives in this verse a, a warning and an instruction. The warning is the first phrase with the colon. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possessed. That's the instruction. And then he will add with the instruction and the warning a parable of which we read just a little bit ago. Let's look at the warning here that Jesus gives. He says, take heed and beware. Jesus now addresses them, and he says, beware. This is the same word that is used in verse 1, back at verse 1. You see, when he talked to his disciples, first of all, he said, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This word beware means to be on your guard. Be afraid of hypocrisy. It can creep into your family and destroy your life. Here Jesus says, beware. 
Beware of greed and covetousness that can spread like wildfire in your home, in your marriage, and in your life. Beware of all kinds of covetousness. We should be afraid of how greed can rule our hearts and minds. These two sins of hypocrisy mentioned in verse 1 and greed mentioned in verse 15 run hand in hand together and Jesus is saying they are very dangerous. Take heed. It's as a double warning. In verse 1, he mentions one warning. Beware. Here he says, look out, beware. The word look out means to keep on your, keep your eyes open. Please look. The word means to be perceptive about things, to look around and watch out for the sin that will destroy your life. Don't ignore its power. This will ruin your family, ruin your, your home, ruin your relationship between your brothers and sisters. It will ruin your relationship with your children and your children to the parents or to your grandparents or, your, or, your, uh, or, or the family members or even within a church. This is the power of hypocrisy and this is the power of greed. I was driving the other day in a parking lot and it was one of those days where it was raining and I pulled around the parking lot and there was a puddle that was there and it was right in the middle of the lane and, uh, and I just kind of drove over it. But it was deeper than I thought it was. And I went, boom, and my, the, the whole vehicle scraped the ground and I went down in a, in a really deep hole and I should have gone around it. But I saw it. And, it's, and then think it was going to be as bad as it was. And when I went down, I went like that. And Amber looked like, whoa. And I thought maybe I had, I had busted the tire or something like that and drove over. I immediately looked in my rearview mirror and there was someone following me. When they saw my car basically fall, I got a little Prius, so it probably went all the way down into the, the, you know, the puddle and went back up. The person behind me immediately veered around the pothole and went around. And they didn't have the problem that I had. Why? Because they were perceptive. They were watching. They weren't texting and driving. They weren't eating or putting on their makeup. They were perceptive in the fact they were watching the car. And when the car in front of them veered around an obstacle that was dangerous, they, uh, or went through an obstacle that was dangerous, they learned the lesson and veered around it. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in this verse. Watch the lives of others who have been destroyed by greed. And don't do the same thing. That's a message, a strong message this morning that the Lord will give. This is what Jesus is talking about. Watch out for the sin and how it hurts and destroys. All of us know a family, a husband and wife, children, grandparents, family conflict that has resulted from finances. We had a family conference last week, and you remember Dr. Herbster mentioned one of the two top reasons for divorce in America in the home, finances and communication. Money, greed, fighting over things. And I want you to remember there are all kinds of greed. There are all kinds of greed. It can show up in your life in a lot of different ways. Just listen to this. Greed can be a desire for more money. But can, greed can also be a desire for more things that money can buy. Greed can also be a desire for more position. To, to go up the ladder. To get a better part of your job and to get a raise. That can be greed in position. Greed can also work itself out in a desire for more in a relationship. Maybe within a husband and a wife and there's some, some, some desire for more and that bitterness and that greed that is, that is lashing out at the other person in a relationship and a manipulation to get what you want. Maybe in, in, a, in a boyfriend and girlfriend relationship, that greed. Or maybe out of a relationship with children between a parent and a child who is greedy and jealous of a relationship and wants to have more of it. Maybe there's a desire, greed can work its way out and a desire to, be, to get better looks. We see that in our world today with this image, especially among teenagers and young adults, to look like someone else. 
and that desire and that greed to, to be more like so-and-so. There could be a desire of, of more knowledge. So a pursuit of learning and knowing more so that you can have an advancement on someone else. Maybe that comes with it a, a, a desire for position. Maybe even a desire for more recognition and fame. Someone does what they do to get a pat on the back. They want more recognition. And when they don't get the recognition, they get angry and bitter because all they want to do is they want to be noticed more and more. Maybe, and I could mention it this way, maybe it's a desire for more control. Maybe more sway, more power. Well, if I just had a, a more of a say in, in church affairs, then I, I, you know, I, I could get what I want done. Or maybe in the home. Well, if my husband would just this and that, my wife would just this and that, and, my, and maybe as a teenager, if I could just this, this and have more of my independence and, and more power and make my own decisions, my own choices, and that desire and that greed could work its way out in a desire to control or to have more power so that you can get what you want done. That's what Jesus is warning. That's why he says there are all kinds of greed and covetousness. Not just one, about money. It can work its way out in a lot of different ways. What's the instruction in verse 15? Jesus makes this statement. For a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. You see, the world thinks he who dies with the most toys wins. Listen to what some of the richest men in the world have said. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is all vanity. Solomon. More modern, less inspired, Vanderbilt said this, the manager of $200 million is enough to kill a person. John Astor, the first multimillionaire in America, said this, I am the most miserable man on the earth. John D. Rockefeller said this, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Henry Ford said late in his life, I was much happier when I was a mechanic. You see, you may think, well, I sure would be happy with a million bucks. I mean, that would solve all of my problems. There's deception. Rockefeller was asked one time, how much money will make a person satisfied? And his response was, always more than he has. You see, that's the definition of greed. More. Warren Risby says this, this definition, covetousness is the unquenchable thirst for more and more. Hughes says this, a boundless grasp for more. A thirst, a grasp, always reaching out for something more. You see the gospel talks a lot about the dangers of money and wealth. But did you know in the gospel of Luke. There are only two times. That the word covetousness is used in the gospel of Luke. And it's in the gospels itself. Only two times. Not just Luke. Luke 12 which is right here. In Mark 7.22. When Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart proceeds all kinds of evils and then Jesus lists the evils that comes out of the heart of man and one of the first ones that's listed there is greed greed you see this is dangerous when we attempt to define ourselves by what we have or maybe what class we fall in or what power or fame that we have or or what knowledge that we possess or what kind of looks that we may have or what kind of relationships that we have or the things that we have and then we define ourselves by those things and that's what Jesus is saying life doesn't consist upon the things that you own or that you have you see, maybe someone would say, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good because I have this or that. Or you see it all the time. I'm defined by the clothes I wear. So they buy the clothes that have the giant logos on it. Or maybe the jewelry that I own. 
or maybe the job that I have, or the house that I have, or the car that I drive, or the latest iPhone that I have, or the gaming system. We are defined, if not careful, we begin to define ourselves by the things that we own. We don't measure our lives by how much we own, or at least we shouldn't. We shouldn't measure our lives. We look down on others who may not look or have or be in the same class or the same type of job or the same type of degree that we have. And so we differ. You see how that becomes an issue of pride in our life? So you drive a Ford. Well, I drive a Chevy. You wear a lot of Lauren, but I wear Gucci. Whoever Gucci is. Or you're an Alabama fan, but I'm an Auburn fan. Right? We begin to define ourselves by the things of this world. And this is very dangerous in a church. It's dangerous in your home, it's dangerous in the world, but it's dangerous in the church. And James addresses this. When people in the church in the time of James began to determine themselves and judge themselves by how they looked and what class they came. So when they would come to fellowships and when they come to meals, they only sat in their groups. Because this is of this class, you're going to have to sit on the floor. You're going to have to bring your own food. You, didn't, you don't have enough money to bring in food for this fellowship, so this is my stuff and that's your stuff. And all of a sudden, these factions that began to divide the church, and James said, who made you a judge over one another? Be careful. You define yourself by the things that you have or the class, and you begin to reject others who don't define themselves in the same fashion. We attempt to make ourselves look like something that we are not. Listen, we are all level at the foot of the cross. God sees every one of us as sinners come short of his glory. No matter what job you have, no matter what education you have, no matter how much money is in your bank account, no matter how many cars you have, or what neighborhood you live in, or what class you come from. To God, we're all the same. And we all need to humbly come before him. And see, this man's first issue, and this issue of, 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 of the root of covetousness was coming from a heart of pride. And this is how inside a person we begin to make, uh, begin to live out. This is why greed and hypocrisy are connected together. Because we begin to think that we are someone that we are not. And we live a fake identity. Instead of humble before God, we walk around thinking we've got things all settled. We got things all straightened out. Jesus, interesting in this word, I think I ought to point this out as just in my study was rich for me. For a man's life, in the Greek, there are three words for life. There's the bios, which is the word for the length of life, how long a life may take. It's often talking about the physical life we have. This is the word that's used in Luke 8 verse 14 when he talks about the seed that fell on the thorny ground that it was choked with riches, cares, and the pleasures of this bios. This physical life that we see. The other word is psyche, which is a personhood, our soul, often translated, but it's also going to be translated life. This would be our relationships, our mind, emotion, and will. Jesus talks about this word in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 25. Whoever wants to save his soul, his life, will have to lose it. Everything you want, everything your will, everything your, your decision making, your faculty, you must give it all and surrender it all to God. Because whoever saves or keeps his life will lose it. But that's not the two words that Jesus uses in this verse. It's the last word, zoe. It means eternal life with God. It is a divine life, the true meaning of life. It is the word that is used in John chapter 1 and verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Divine life. A true relationship with the divine. The true meaning of life. Not the physical life. Not the emotional or intellectual life. But true life with God. John 10.10 10. I have come that they might have life. And that they might have life more abundantly. Listen, there is a God-sized hole in your heart. 
and it cannot be filled with things. It cannot be filled with intellect or knowledge or any kind of decisions or choices that you make in this life to fill it so that you can go out and you can find, you can make some good decisions. The only place that can fill that place in your soul is God. And Jesus is saying, man consists, he is defined by his relationship with God. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know God? Do you have a relationship with God this morning? Is your life defined, is your soul, is the very existence of who you are defined by what God says about you? That you're a sinner short of his glory, in need of a savior to come, and he came and died on the cross so that you could have life, eternal life, satisfaction. And the problem in our society is, and the problem with this man is, we try and attempt to take the things of this world and shove it into the hole of our heart to bring us happiness and joy and satisfaction. And the problem is, it does it for a short time. But it can all be taken away. And when you define your life by those types of things, in the next life when you stand before God, you will be empty. Maybe you feel that way. Mark Twain said this, our civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Do you know in our area the things that are being built? You just drive around Huntsville and Madison and Harvest and just look around at the things that are going up. Houses, banks, car washes. This does seem like there's car washes everywhere, isn't there? And storage facilities. Storage facilities. I didn't even know what those were when I was a kid. The houses today aren't big enough to hold the things that we own. You can drive down my street. And when the garage doors are open, people cannot even park their cars in their garage. Because of the stuff. That's in their garage. I thought garages were for cars. You see, what is being stored in those storages around here? Stuff. Stuff that we apparently maybe don't need. And some of it is probably filled with stuff in those storages that are on credit cards and people are in debt to the credit cards of the stuff that's in a storage unit. It's interesting that we grasp for more and more. Can I just close here with just a parable? I, I, it's, it's a, it goes from verse 16 down to verse 21. And our time is already fleeting, but with this story and the instruction that Jesus gives, he gives a parable of a rich man. In Luke, Luke will give us the record of three parables of rich men, and this is the first of three. The other two are found in Luke chapter 16. A certain rich man who had a ground that was plenteous. You saw that in verse 16. This man is rich because his ground is fertile. And he's thinking about building bigger barns to hold all his stuff because he has too much stuff. More than he needs. Now wouldn't that be a great problem to have? Well, not necessarily. Notice in this passage he doesn't get his wealth by cheating, by stealing, by taking advantage of people. He's not gambling. He didn't win the lottery. He didn't inherit any of this from his parents. The man's wealth came from the ground that he owned. It was a gift given to him, very similar to an inheritance that is given, but it is a gift given not by his parents. Who causes the crops to grow? Who makes the ground fertile? Who brings the rain? Who causes the fruit to produce? Who brings blessings from above? God. This man is rich because God. He's not greedy in the sense of he's gone out and stolen it. He's actually been blessed by this stuff because God gave it to him. 
You see, being blessed and being rich is not a sin. Having success, having good crops, having a productive business, being well in the marketplace. It is when we think that we have done it all ourselves, that's when the problem arises. It is when we forget God and think that this is because of us. And Jesus points that out in the story. That's the issue here. This man is blessed beyond his own ability to store anything. But he has no thought for God in it all. And Jesus mentions 11 times, I, me, my. You see, the man in the story does not see his riches as coming from God, but coming out of his own power. The parable of the seed and sower. You see the cares of the world that come in and choke the seed. You remember that story? You see the things of the world can choke the word of God in your life today. We can get so busy in our life making money that you don't have time for God. You can be so preoccupied by your Facebook or by your bonds and stocks, or your Netflix subscription, that the message right now to you is all a blur. You could care less. Because you have a favorite show that you haven't watched yet. And that has gotten in the way of your life between you and God. And things of this earth matter more to you than your relationship with the Heavenly Father. That's how Jesus said it can choke because you begin to ignore God. The arrogance of this man thinking that he has done it all. One businessman may say, well, this guy is really saving for the future. He's investing in the market. Look at what he's going to leave to his family. What a good steward this man is. And yet Jesus is emphatically saying no. This man actually has no concern for the future. He is only concerned with living it up right now. Eat, drink, and be merry. He is out for number one. He thinks nothing of sharing his wealth. He thinks nothing of the poor. He thinks nothing of tithing it to the Lord. He thinks nothing about being gracious. He thinks only of himself. He is completely self-absorbed. And interesting that these types of people who live for the things of this world are so very lonely. They don't have any friends because they live for number one. Making money, getting power, getting control, living for self. This is ultimate hedonism. I will take the things that God has blessed me with, ignore God, and do exactly as I please. Kent Hughes says this, this is the only place in the Bible where retirement is spoken of. And here it is in the context of disapproval. Of course, the Bible recognizes aging and slowing down, but retirement to a life of self-indulgence finds no favor with God. This man says, I'll kick back, put my feet up, eat, drink, and be merry as if I have no tomorrow. And Jesus ends with this man's obituary in verse 20. You fool. Tonight, your soul, your life, the life, he uses the word psyche, which is your emotion, your will, your desires, your, your thinking, it'll all be taken tonight. You see, the godless reject God and seek to live a life without the existence of God, and think there is no tomorrow. And Jesus says he is a fool. A fool is one who fails to see that life is brief, and the things of this earth are fleeting, and they don't last. A fool is the one who thinks he has all the time in the world. William Barclay said this, the real tragedy in this man is that he never saw beyond himself, and he never saw beyond this life. Here is a man who had everything lying on his bed waiting for tomorrow to enjoy it all. And God said, you won't see the next morning.
A person who lives for the things of this world, Jesus says in verse 21, is not rich toward God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? It means living a life with God in your mind, in your focus. It means honoring God with your substance. It means living for a relationship with God and not for a relationship with things. It means realizing that when this life is all over, there is a God that we must answer to. This man was a fool because he didn't think far enough into the future. What happens when this life is over? Am I rich towards God? Edward says this, investments in things never pays the dividends one's hopes for. You can eat and drink all you want, but one day it will all end, maybe sooner than later. Do you have a heavenly portfolio? You know what a portfolio is, don't you? A portfolio is a range of investments. Do you have one in heaven? Uh, many of you have one here on this earth. You're probably being a good steward of what God has given you, taking care and being careful about getting in debt and making sure that you do have some, some things set aside for retirement, it's maybe even some things for your children and your grandchildren, and even some things in the church like this that you would, you would give towards missions and other things like that. Praise the Lord. God keeps record. But can I ask you, do you have a portfolio in heaven? The year was 1888. And Nobel was a Swedish chemist who had made a fortune applying his discoveries of nitroglycerin as well as his investment in and of the production of dynamite. His brother Ludwig lived in France and he died unexpectedly. Alfred was sent his brother's obituary, but the French newspaper had confused these two brothers and had written an obituary about Alfred. The news headline of the French newspaper read this, The merchant of death is dead. And the obituary's words included, quote, He will be remembered for creating the potential for mass destruction. Close quote. Alfred was confronted with the truth of how he would be viewed by this world when he was gone. He was so shaken by this that he resolved to change his entire legacy. He immediately established the trust from his personal wealth of $9 million, which would equal to $280 million in today's economy. Nobel went to work establishing international awards for people whose work benefited mankind on some level, most notably the advancement of world peace. He died eight years later, and his plan worked. Today, when you hear his name, you think of the Nobel Peace Prize. You would never think of the merchant of death, the one who created such destruction, created destructive power. He changed his investment. And I wonder this morning if you need to change your portfolio. You need to change your investment. Your heart is tied to the things of this world and it's choking your relationship with God. Come to the Lord. And, and, and give away your greed, your desire for more. And say, Lord, I want to know you and you alone. Help me to use the things that you've given and blessed as tools to advance your kingdom. To be good stewards of what you have, but not to, be not to live for the things of this world. Father, thank you for the time we've had this morning. Lord, uh, there's so much in this issue of greed and the, Lord, uh, the Savior took some very important opportunity to teach this man a lesson. And I don't know, just like all the other rich man that would come to Jesus, I don't know if this man walked away with a changed life. The Scripture doesn't say. Or if he walked away sad. Lord, we here are, are presented with the truth of how greed, covetousness can so destroy a home and family and a life how our world is reaching out for more and more and some of the most wealthy, famous people in the world are the most miserable, 
seeking drugs and alcohol and relationships and so insecure because they have not found true hope. Maybe there's someone here this morning and the Lord has spoken to your heart about this issue of your heart and your treasure. And this morning, you need to turn to the Lord. You could be an unbeliever, and it's, it's causing you to, to reject the free gift of salvation in your life because of your arrogance and your pride, and you need to trust Christ as your Savior. It could be as a believer this morning, yet you're, you've been blinded by your pursuit of God because you're so focused on the things of this life. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you stand please? I'd ask the instrumentalists if they would play through a hymn of invitation before we close the service. <clears throat> and if you'd like to come and pray or pray in your seat, or you'd like to talk to one of the pastors after the service, we would love to, to share with you how you can know your relationship with God is secure, your home is in heaven, your sins are forgiven. Jesus Christ says, beware, watch out for this sin of greed. It can so easily destroy your home and family, just like the leaven of hypocrisy. As she plays through, and we just take a moment of prayer and reflection. if she played through one more time. <clears throat> Don't leave this morning without talking to the Lord. Getting your heart in the right place. Make a decision today to be receptive don't walk away from this warning and this instruction thinking that you have all the time in the world. Life is brief. James said it's like a vapor. Some people think that they've got all day. They can go here or there and do this or that. The reality is that we could meet our Savior face to face today by the end of the day. Make sure things are well between you and the Savior.